would seem kind of unfair if I told you all a bunch of parables and then I was like, see me after and I'll explain them to you. Jesus. Um, let us pray. Gracious God, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. Our ways are not your ways. We pray through these human words that the living word might be heard and help us to walk in your path. The path that leads to life, the path that leads into the kingdom, the path that leads creation to be made new. Amen. You may recall back in March, on uh, March 11th of 2011, a magnitude 9 earthquake hit off the coast of Japan. It set off tsunamis with giant waves that killed more than 15,000 people. And it caused meltdowns of Fukushima nuclear power plant leaking radiation and causing massive evacuations. It was terrible. Following, Facebook, social media, television, were lit up with people's thoughts and prayers for the people of Japan, with praying for cooperation between nations to relieve the humanitarian crisis and help to clean up the wreckage. This is how most responses went, and most Christian ones, even prayers for the victims, prayers for rebuilding and relieving of suffering. Some, however, tried to make sense of why the earthquake happened in the first place. They tried to offer some religious meaning to the event. One American pastor notoriously well, not this isn't the notorious part, but one American pastor started off by saying that it is the duty of Christians to do acts of charity and attend to mercy for all who suffer and should do so for the people of Japan. as the standard response at first. But then he went to say that God was behind the disaster to begin with. He started talking about God's awesome power pointing out passages in the Bible that image God as in control of the seas and earthquakes, God as all-powerful, God as in control. Therefore, God caused the earthquake, he said. And God caused the earthquake for a purpose. God's unilateral taking of thousands of lives, he wrote, God's taking of lives in this earthquake is a loud declaration that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The message for all the world is that life is alone from God and belongs to him. He creates it and gives it and takes it according to his will and owes us nothing. He has a right to both children and to the aged. It is a great gift to learn this truth and dedicate our lives to their true owner rather than defraud him till it is too late. 
So not only did God set the tsunami in motion, he wrote, but God caused the earthquake for a larger purpose. God showed this awesome power to elicit our fear, to drive us away from our sin and self-preoccupation, ultimately driving us into his almighty arms. It was a shock and awe campaign for good, for our good, you could say. If this pastor's assessment of the earthquake upsets you in some way, you wouldn't be alone. It was met with a huge backlash, backlash from many non-Christians and Christians alike, and I can honestly say when I heard it, I basically just groaned another groan for the public reputation of Christians everywhere. It not only seemed unkind towards the victims and their families, it also seemed like the kind of thing that makes people not want to be Christians, it makes them not want to even like us in the first place. It seems supremely insensitive at best and makes God out to be a violent monster, an arbitrary violent monster at first or at worst. It's not good. All of the moral indignation I feel, and we feel, though, aside, it's an understandable thing for a preacher to say. It's understandable because it's an attempt to answer a hard question. We live in a world that is filled with small injustices, all the way up to huge natural calamities. If there is a God, and if this God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then how could God allow such terrible things to happen? And one answer to this question, which is what the pastor gave, was that God is all-powerful and either allows these things to happen or, in this case, causes them. In this line of thinking, we may not know the reason why, but God enacts even the most terrible events for our good. Everything happens for a reason. There's that phrase. Whether part of a secret unknown plan or in our face, God shows us his world-shaking, tsunami-crashing power to turn us away from our destructive habits and towards God. Like I said, it makes sense as a way to try to make sense of the things that have happened. But not everything that makes sense is right or is true. Don't get me wrong, in the Christian tradition, we define God as powerful. Yes. We call God the Lord of all creation. Yes. The Apostles' Creed draws us into our belief in God the Father Almighty. And we end the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his followers, with thine is the kingdom the power, and the glory. We've never shied away from proclaiming a powerful creator with no other rival. We believe that God is powerful, true, not denying that. God is powerful, but the issue is the definition of power what it means to be powerful, and what kind of power God has and God uses. 
When Jesus came onto the scene, people had high hopes for him. They gave him the title of Messiah, meaning the anointed one. The same title afforded to King David, the warrior king. For years, Jesus' people had been living under the yoke of occupation. First Assyrians, then Babylonians, then Persians, then Greeks, and now the Romans. The Messiah was the one who'd been promised, the one invested with the divine power to overthrow oppressors and to establish the Basilea Tonteo. Say that five times fast. The kingdom of God. God would outstretch his mighty arm, and this Messiah would land like an earthquake of divine vengeance and toss the Romans out. God's royal rule would finally come to earth in power. This is what everybody expected. Everybody had high hopes, but when Jesus actually got to go about his business, people got confused. They got worried because the earth didn't shake at the sound of his footsteps. All they heard was the crushing of sand underneath his sandals. And when he went about his business, he went from town to town, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, and freeing people's souls from torment. The only army he raised was a gang of losers, nobodies, people with disabilities and outcasts, nobody else that anybody really wanted anything to do with. And the only weapon he ever used was the word of his mouth. They got confused and they got scared because this Messiah didn't look like a Messiah at all. Instead of powerful, this guy seemed completely powerless. He didn't fit any of their definitions of power at all. Things weren't changing. So his followers began to lose faith and lose heart because it didn't come in the way that they expected it would come, the kingdom of God. And so Jesus told parables like the ones in our scripture reading for this morning as his answer to their fears. The kingdom of God, he says, is like a guy who went out and planted some seeds, went to bed, got up each day, Watch the field grow on its own, not even understanding how it happened. But on the day of the harvest, he's out there chopping the crop with all his might. Then he says this one. What's the kingdom of God like? He asks. It's like a mustard seed. Tiniest little seed you ever saw. When you toss it in the dirt, it becomes the greatest shrub around. We saw that image before. With branches so big, birds can even make their homes with it. That's what the kingdom of God is like. So there's a parable about seeding. Slow-moving patience that results in a tremendous harvest. And another about a tiny seed that takes time to germinate. But once it does grow, it becomes strong. In fact, in fact this is actually supposed to be kind of funny. A mustard bush is kind of a squat little weed compared to other plants. It pops up, boop, unannounced. And then it spreads, taking over the landscape while the larger trees 
grow one by one, take years, and take their time. But Jesus says this little shrub is a shelter, a sanctuary for life. Jesus says this is how the kingdom of God comes. This is how God's royal rule is established. This is how the world becomes the way God wants it to be. It comes slowly. It comes built up over time, like the universe coming into being over billions of years. It starts small, hidden, unseen. But when it finally roots in, the storehouse overflows with grain. Branches reach out towards heaven, sturdy enough for all to find a place of sanctuary in its branches. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And that's what God's power is like. We often define power, especially divine power, in human terms. That God works the same way we would if we were God. Karl Barth says, man is not God speaking in a loud voice. Wait, God is not man speaking in a loud voice. With acts of destruction and control, an earthquake with accompanying tsunamis is the natural world's version of guns, tanks, missiles. One of those things we humans can't predict, let alone control. It's one of the most awe-inspiring, fearful things we can imagine. So then we assume that God must work like that. That God's power must be like that. But according to this parable, God's power isn't like that at all. God's ways are not our ways. God's power is a different kind of power. God's power is not the kind that is plugged into surround sound on the 24-hour news cycle broadcast ready. A sorrow-inflicting, fear-inducing tsunami. There are, few, there are few parables about earthquakes. There is one. We'll grant that. But there's so many more about seeds. Scattering, planting, tending, growing, hidden, steady, patient, eventually bearing a harvest beyond belief. According to Jesus, God's power is less like a tsunami that lays waste to everything in its path, inspiring fear. God's power is more like mustard. My grandpa used to say, just give it a little mustard. Maybe that's what he meant. Popping up like a sturdy weed. <laughs> Thank you, Walter, for your commentary. Popping up like a sturdy weed, one that evokes gratitude. Turning the world from dead brown to lush green. God's power is the hidden power for life, without which nothing could exist or grow. God's power is the power for new life where there was none before. God's power is the hidden power for life. So if you are someone who doubts, like Jesus' disciples, believe it or not, 
if you're someone who sees no evidence of God in our world, no evidence of something loving at the center of all things greater than us, because you haven't seen the big tsunami, or because you've seen the tsunami and refuse to believe that God is like that, look at the mustard seed instead. Take a look at the small mercies in your life that have come to you without really noticing them or deserving them. Take a look at lives lived in patient love for God and neighbor. Or take a look at Jesus. Take a look at Jesus and you'll see God's power on display. And know that your life is dirt. But in a good way. No matter who you are, your life is potential seed, potential soil for the seed of God's kingdom, the beginning of a whole new world. The world is the work of a loving creator, and God is already working, bringing new life. Friends, brothers and sisters, there is a power in the universe, one that is greater than any other power, the power of God. But God's power isn't defined by the world's terms. One that rules through acts of devastation and fear. No. God's power is a hidden one. God's power is like a tiny seed that grows beyond our seeing and our knowing. God's power is behind the scenes. God's power is like mustard. And your life, too? can be covered in the holy weeds of healing, mercy, and forgiveness if you let them in. May it be so. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, whose power is known only in weakness, and to God be the glory and power forever. Amen.